Well, hey, Kindred. Uh, I am Lindsay. I am excited that you are here tonight. Um, it was 95 degrees today in Colorado, but I got myself a pumpkin cream cold brew, and the Buffs play on Saturday, which makes it feel like fall to me. So <laughs> the weather is not really cooperating, but I am embracing it. I am ready for fall and the change of seasons. And I am thankful uh, that you are here tonight because we are in week six of our look at this ancient letter written to the Philippians. It has given us um, this window into the past. So as we read Paul's words, we can sense his connection to this place and to these people, these people that he shared his very life with that seem like unlikely company. It all began with a widow, an orphan, and a jailer. And this peculiar beginning, it speaks to the kind of community that Jesus is intent on bringing together, the kind of community that Paul was dedicated to preserving in Philippi, and the kind of community that the church still seeks to be today, a community marked by humility and unity that would strike curiosity among a selfish and polarized culture, the kind of joy amidst crushing circumstances that would be attractive to a panicked and anxious world, a community marked by the kind of warmth and safety that illuminates a path forward the same way that light does in a dark room. And so tonight we launch into chapter three of this letter. Paul is going to begin with a warning. And this warning may sound a bit redundant to us. It is a warning that underscores most of the New Testament and many of Paul's other letters. And so if you have been a Christian for any length of time, I would imagine that this is something that you've likely heard many times in church before. A lesson that we might be tempted to shrug off and go, yeah, yeah, I got that one. Right? We know this. We have been through this. But I would argue that if our reaction to this point that Paul is going to stress yet again is that very calloused, know-it-all response, that is usually my first tell, that I am in danger and that this lesson is for me. It is so important that Paul returns to it over and over again, suggesting that what Paul is about to remind us of, it's not just something that we learn once in an hour at church and have it mastered and then never return to it again. But it is a lesson that we have to revisit over and over because of just how easily we tend to forget it. So Paul begins this way. He says, watch out. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. So as Paul is writing this, he has a very specific group of people in his mind's eye. And, and it's possible that he's talking about the same group of people back in chapter one that he called the opposition, or that a new group has risen to popularity and they are now threatening the very DNA of this church in Philippi that Paul loves so much. This group was often referred to as Judaizers. They believed that anyone who wasn't Jewish but that wanted to become a Christian or follow the way of Jesus had to first subscribe to all the Jewish law, 
One of these laws of very high importance being circumcision. And so for a modern reader, all of this fighting about circumcision in the New Testament seems really bizarre to us. And truthfully, sometimes I'm like, Paul, can we just like lay off on the circumcision talk, especially when I have to preach on those verses that week. But it is really a matter of grace. Because what we believe about our belonging to God, what we believe marks us as his, that has implications for how we live and how we treat other people. And this is why Paul is so adamant about confronting this group. So he says, watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators. And the strength of Paul's words here is a bit lost on us. But in the original language, Paul is using an alliteration that turns some of the Judaizers' own logic against them. And so these words are not just random insults, but they pack a lot of punch. First, he calls them dogs. And this might be hard for us to believe, but first century Israelites didn't typically own domesticated house pets. And so in their context, dogs were not a part of the family that sleep in your own bed, like mine, but they were rabid animals who fed on roadkill and garbage. So they would think of dogs like we might think of raccoons, huge, mangy raccoons. Now, this is a play on cleanliness, right? Because this group believed that all of their rituals, all of these practices made them clean. And here, Paul is comparing them to a rabid dog that finds its dinner in the dumpster. He's saying, you are unclean. You are filthy. And then he calls them evildoers. And this is a pun on doing, because this group emphasized doing works of the law. All of their attention was spent on keeping every letter of Jewish law. Though Paul is going all of that legalism, it has made you spiritually bankrupt. And so you think you are doing work of the law, but really you are doing the work of evil, drawing people away from grace. And then third, he calls them mutilators. Circumcision was the mark of the old covenant, sealing this agreement between God and the descendants of Abraham. It's this symbol of inclusion, of belonging. And here, Paul is turning this symbol around, this symbol of pride, into a sign of their exclusion. You are being excluded from grace. So Paul uses the very slogans of this party against them. And then he goes on to say the true mark of a believer is not in their own flesh. It's not in their own behavior modification, but those who belong to God are marked by three things. Paul writes, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. And so our status as people who have been forgiven who are free from the penalty of sin, that is defined by these three things. The indwelling of the Spirit. We looked at this at length last week. And so Paul would say, look for the fruit. Look for the things that the Spirit produces in someone's life. Love, joy, peace, 
patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Two, he says they give credit to Jesus. This is to say every good thing in our life, any shred of compassion or kindness or peace we have, these things are not because we do such a good job of holding on to Jesus or keeping our commitment to him, but he is the one who has held on to us. He has kept his eye on us. He has kept every promise and commitment to us to the point of torture and death. And so this is who we give credit to. We give credit to Jesus for every good thing we have. And lastly, that they reject self-sufficiency. This has to be one of the most distinguishing markers of a believer because it will look so radically different from the rest of the world, the rest of society that says all you need is within yourself. Entire industries are pointed at helping you achieve a higher state of self-actualization. But the follower of Jesus realizes there is no amount of intelligence or self-actualization that makes us more loved. There is nothing about our own abilities that could earn us more acceptance from the one who made us. And now this doesn't mean self-depreciation or degradation, but it means that we are aware of our own limits, our own deficiencies, and our need for Jesus. I want us to notice what Paul does not include on that list. Evidence of your belonging to God. Evidence of a relationship with Jesus, it is not found in how often you make it to church or how busy you are with church activities and volunteering. It is not in your sparkling Christian report card. It is evidenced in the fruit of the Spirit. How readily we admit that it is Jesus who held on to us when our own strength was fading and that we have limits that I fall short as a mom and a friend and a sister and a wife and a student and a pastor all the time. But thank God, Jesus is more than enough to help carry me and sustain me in all those unique roles. So the takeaway here for us in 2023 is be wary. Be wary of those who insist on legalism who insists that your belonging to God depends on anything other than Jesus' sacrifice. Be careful of those who insist that God is withholding his love and his acceptance of you until you sort out that thing, until you sort out that addiction or your sexuality. Be careful. Watch out for those who preach a prosperity gospel proposing that you have to prove your commitment to God before he proves his commitment to you. Be careful of those who would suggest you could somehow reach a deeper, more legitimate faith by your own intelligence. He says, be careful. And then he's going to use his own story as this example of what this really looks like. We get this incredible list of all of the things that Paul could take pride in, that he could use to define himself, that he could use to establish himself as someone of status and worth and value. 
Paul goes on to write, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, in themselves, well, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness, based on the law, faultless. So we can separate this list into two categories. Things that Paul inherited or things that Paul was born into. And then second, his personal accomplishments. Things that he accumulated in his adult life. So let's just run through them really quick. He says, circumcised on the eighth day. It's kind of a weird flex. People don't usually walk around, you know, flaunting that. But for anyone belonging to the Jewish tradition, they would have recognized the significance immediately because it pointed back to the importance of that covenant, that agreement that God made with Abraham. So this is Paul's way of saying, I have been an insider since birth, since eight days old. This might be similar to when we hear maybe pastor's kids say something to the effect of, I've been in church since the womb, right? I've been an insider since before I was born. Then he goes on, the people of Israel, even more specifically, the race of Israel. So this is a nod to his bloodline, that he is not a convert, but that he was born into this status as an Israelite. And the fact that he even uses that word, Israelite, he's using insider language because anyone who is not an Israelite would have just said Jewish. And so again, Paul is using insider lingo. He says, the tribe of Benjamin. Well, Benjamin was one of the many sons of Jacob, the grandson of Abraham. And so this is a very important patriarch in the history of God's people. And among the many tribes of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin held a special pride because Israel's first king descended from this line. And so here, Paul is pointing to his generational pedigree. He's saying, I come from a line of very important people, people who have held important political offices in our history. Then he says, a Hebrew of Hebrews. This is a nod to his private school education. His parents made sure that he studied under a prestigious rabbi. So Paul was Ivy League status. This is similar to saying, I have a Harvard education. So Paul explains that his family lineage, his education, it makes him elite. He comes from privilege and status and wealth. And these are all just statements of fact at this point. Then he goes on to list his own achievements. Paul came from a family of Pharisees, yet he chose to continue on in that profession, not out of duty, but because he, he held those same convictions. He held that same rigidity. There was a certain celebrity to Paul's legalism. He had a reputation as a heavy hitter. And then he says, uh, for zeal, a persecutor of the church. It is not too strong to say that Paul was a terrorist. That before meeting Jesus for himself, he organized and facilitated the raiding and murdering of Christians. There's one moment in the book of Acts, and it describes that when this infamous follower of Jesus, Stephen, 
this powerful preacher, he was being stoned to death, that Paul actually stood on the sideline and held the executioner's garment so that it wouldn't get bloodied as they stoned this man to death in public. And Paul watched on with approval. Lastly, he says, based on the law, I am faultless. Now, this doesn't mean perfect, because no one other than Jesus lived a sinless life. But if one could keep the 613 commandments in the Torah, in the Old Testament, that made you forgiven. And so Paul is saying, I have been very good at keeping all the rules. By those standards, I am spotless. I have kept them perfectly. So by this list, Paul is a religious Olympian. No one holds more medals or more wins by this standard. No one can top him. And then he says this, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Paul is using interesting language here to describe how Jesus has changed not only how he sees himself, but how he sees everything. He deliberately uses accounting language. He talks of gains and losses to illustrate what it means to belong to Jesus. He says, whatever were gains to me, whatever I used to think gave me value and status and worth. In this one sweeping statement, he says he now considers loss. It is of no value now to him in light of Jesus. Author R. Kent Hughes suggests that we should visualize this in this way, that there are two columns, and on the left is gain, and on the right is loss. Well, Paul has just given us his list that he would have put in the gain column, right? His family of origin, that he is of noble birth, born into privilege, that he has a family with a history of political power and connections. He comes from generational wealth, the kind of wealth that could buy him an Ivy League education, that he was a career Pharisee, that he had a reputation of being feared and respected. So he has carefully added up all of the social status and the accolades and the achievements that used to contribute to his sense of power and importance. And then upon meeting the resurrected Jesus while campaigning for the death of his followers, he comes to then realize that his one and only gain, his one singular credit in life looks like this, Christ alone. Can we say the same? Does Christ stand alone in our gain column? Not just at the top of our list, but does he stand alone? I would imagine that for many of us, we have a list. 
And it's probably not identical to Paul's, but it's full of things that we look to to give us importance and meaning and purpose, things that aren't necessarily bad, but we are counting on them to define us, to tell us who we are. And then we hope that they add up to enough to pay for God's love. So I'll start with mine while you think of what might be on yours. So my list might look like education, right? that I have a college education, that I am pursuing a master's degree. I might look at this and go, this makes me more valuable. It gives me more worth. Right? Marriage, our relationship status as married or as single, we are saying that says something about my value, motherhood or parenting, that my child is happy and healthy and well-adjusted and a fully functioning human in society. I take this as pride, that it is a reflection of me. Right? My job, my bank account, my popularity, that I am well-liked, right? that people adore me or want to be around me, my moral track record, that I am really good at keeping all of the rules. What are you counting on to count for something? The kind of family you come from, the kind of house you can afford or the car you drive, the academic or athletic achievement and success of your children, your job title, your salary, the size of your 401k, your good moral behavior, and your clean, spotless record. This is the way of the world. This is the way of religion that masquerades as something different, but really, really, it is the antithesis of grace. The way of Jesus invites us to see how none of these things that we grasp at for status and value and identity can give us what they promise. They can't deliver the security of knowing that we are deeply loved, of knowing that God calls us his own. This is what concerned Paul, that the Philippians and that we could hold on to two competing theologies at once and not even realize it. For the Christian, Christ is our only gain. Yet how often do we find ourselves looking for confidence in our flesh, in ourselves, in our own history, our own status and position, our own behavior. In this very personal confession, it's almost as if Paul is in a flashback of the moment when he first encountered Jesus, when grace became real to him. He says, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. Remember, Paul is writing this from a cold, dark, damp prison cell. Notice here in the way Paul is remembering his own collision with the grace of Jesus. He now says, I value that above everything else. It is worth more to know Jesus. This is the only time that Paul calls Jesus his own, saying, Christ my Lord. Remember a few weeks ago, we looked at those infamous verses out of chapter 2, 
And Paul explains that Jesus is given God's very same name, the name that God gave himself, the name Yahweh, Lord, announcing that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Paul here is saying that Jesus who was buried and rose again, proving he has power over darkness, that same Jesus is my Lord, mine, the closeness, the affection, the friendship that Paul experienced with Jesus. I thought about it this way this week. This might not work for everyone, but it helped me to connect with what Paul is describing. My husband's name is Cole, and one of our very, very good friends is also named Cole. And so when we hang out with him and his wife and their family or a group of us get together, this gets very confusing very quickly. And so there have been plenty of times when someone will be telling a story, and then before they get too far, I'll have to kind of stop and clarify and go, wait, wait, are you talking about my Cole? And when I say my, I'm communicating a whole lot in just two letters. Right? My Cole signifies the Cole I'm in a relationship with the Cole I know and love and have spent the last 10 years of my life with, my Cole, the Cole who doesn't take sauce with his chicken nuggets, which is weird, right? My Cole who prefers a pen with blue ink instead of black ink, my Cole who will willingly sit in the middle seat so that I could have the window or the aisle, right? My Cole who has never never once questioned my call in ministry or made me feel guilty for pursuing it. My Cole, who woke up every two hours with me when we brought our newborn home from the hospital. Is this the kind of closeness, familiarity, and intimacy we have with Jesus? Not just acknowledging that he is the Messiah, the Christ, the Lord, the one who died and rose again, but he is my Jesus my rescue, my freedom from perfectionism, my protector, my comforter, and my counselor, and my provider, my Lord. Paul goes, knowing Jesus, knowing Christ, my Lord, is worth far more to me than anything I once thought of as gain. He says, I consider all of that garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him. And so Paul looks back at that list, all of those achievements and everything that it brought him, his self-importance, his arrogance, his connections and wealth and his comfort and security, and he calls it all rubbish. The word that he uses is actually much stronger and explicit. And in essence, he is saying the idea that any of those things could somehow move me closer to God and move me up some proverbial spiritual ladder. That is trash. That idea is BS. Paul doesn't say his family or his education or his self-discipline is bad, but how he counts it, he now views it as meaningless because of the way it kept him from Jesus the way it kept him from his God, the way it kept him from grace. And then he closes with this, which is possibly the most moving and beautiful thing that I have read in a very long time. 
He writes, I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that, is, that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death so that one way or another, I will experience the resurrection from the dead. And it has been 30 years, 30 years since Paul met a blinding light on the road to Damascus that changed the trajectory of his life and his whole world forever. And still, still 30 years later, how many church plants later, how many trips to prison, how many brutalities and injustices later, still his only aim is to know Jesus, to know him more fully and more deeply. He has known him for decades, and he is not bored. He has not grown tired of Jesus. He has not grown calloused of hearing about his grace that saves us when nothing of our own could. His grace that secures our belonging to God. This grace that relieves us from that pressure of having to prove our worthiness over and over. Paul writes, I want to experience the mighty power of resurrection, the power that raised Jesus from the dead. That power changed my life when I was 17 years old, sitting in a high school auditorium on a Sunday morning. I understood for the first time that grace was real. But it is not the only time That power continues to move in my life, and it takes things that I thought were dead and were gone and had been buried, and it breathes new life into them. I have watched the way the death of this future dream, this future that I longed for and believed in for so long, the death of that gave way to the start of something brand new, to this, to kindred. The way I thought I lost the trust and safety and closeness in one of my most treasured relationships. But the death of that old unhealthy dynamic, it gave way for us to forge a new one, a healthier, more beautiful one. The way loss and grief and pain give birth to new perspective and sturdier joy. And this holy appreciation for life and for breath, and for a body that moves and skin that burns in the sun and shivers in the wind. I want to live with an expectation of resurrection. That doesn't neglect or downplay the pain and death, but I want to live in anticipation of transformation, believing that what is broken in me, what is buried and rotting and decaying, in us and in our communities and in our country, that that could be made new, that it could be healed, that it could be made whole again. So whether you have known Jesus for more than half your life or whether you have never known his compassion and his grace and his mercy, do you want to? In the words of Paul, do you want to know Christ and the power of resurrection, either for the first time or the hundredth time. I named this message, tell me what you want, what you really, really want. 
because I'm an elder millennial <laughs> and I do love the Spice Girls. But I want to challenge us to investigate what our true motivations are, what it is that we truly want. Do we want to be right more than we want to know Jesus? Do we want to know more proof of our own perspective or do we want to know Jesus? Do we want to know more Bible verses that prove us as superior more than we want to know Jesus? Do we want to know convenience more than we want to know resurrection? Do we want to know winning more than we want resurrection? Do we want to know luxury and security more than we know resurrection? This is my prayer for me and for our church, that we would be people who want to know Jesus and who desperately want to experience resurrection in our own life now, in our own hearts and minds, in our own friendships and families and marriages, in our own neighborhoods and at our kids' schools and all of these other places that we frequent and go. That we would live with an awareness of his overwhelming grace, that we would never grow bored or tired of the way it dissolves our pride and dissolves our insecurity and draws us nearer to Jesus. And so do you want to know him? Do you want to know Christ and experience the power that raised him from the dead? Well, then we have to let go of our striving and our positioning and our earning and our hustling and our proving. Do you want to know Jesus? Kindred, will you stand? Will you pray with me? God, I thank you that you are kind and generous and gentle with us. God, I pray that you would help us to be honest about the things in our life and about us that we have used to give us a sense of identity, a sense of purpose and worth and value. God, I thank you for Jesus who says, count it all as lost, I am enough. I have given my very life for you to know just how loved, just how secure, just how worthy you are. God, help us to be a people who want to know you more deeply and more fully, who would lean in closer to who you are. God, help us to be a people who want to experience resurrection and all of the transformation and healing and redemption that you offer us. Help us to be those people. Jesus, we love you and we need you. And I pray this in your name. Amen.